Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast. In episode 14, we are talking to polyrhythmic and improvisatory trio Tope. Welcome to the Turquoise Coconut Podcast, and today I'm really, really stoked that I've got a non-jazz trio Tope with me. Uh, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Non-jazz trio collide fizzing sour scatter skronk with sludgy doom-inspired riffs. How did you know? It just was what came <laughs> to mind when I listened to your stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've been really excited about talking to you because I, I really love what you're doing and I'm quite jealous that I'm not in your band. Maybe you could introduce yourselves one by one. Or one another. Or one another. Hey, that's a good idea. Oh, Why don't you do that? God. Jamie on saxophone is eating a banana right now. Uh-huh. Great saxophonist. Manchester-based. Killing the, dare I say, session musician scene. It would be a lie, but you can say it. <laughs> Um, and runs a killer 11 piece or is it reducing it's still 11 no gossip still 11 piece <laughs> killer band called Agbeko I'm not gonna yeah do any injustices by describing the style not know exactly how to put it but they're fantastic that's Jamie below me is Mike he plays the guitar uh, he lives in Glasgow he is one of the increasingly more involved members of the Glasgow Improvisers Orchestra, as well as in Tope. And really the, the way that this band initially formed was really along the lines of, of the sort of musical styles that Mike and Adam found themselves drawn to. And then they kind of cornered me in a room and asked if I wanted to be part of it. So you, so so I, I would I would credit Mike and Adam with uh, with why we're here today. Nice one. And the first one you heard was Adam, drummer in Newcastle, and what's, how would you call it? Like physical maths, what he does with his body when he plays the drums. Mm, I like it's, that physical it's like maths. Division across physically limbs. expressed equations. Yeah, although I'm not sure that's how you'd say it, but that's how I said it. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you. It's very democratic. I like it. I know you formed at uni. Was that Newcastle? Am I right in saying that? Yes. Right. Yeah, Newcastle Uni. We're all yeah. music students there, graduates. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a general question, actually. What is it about Newcastle? Because I've been up here for about three and a bit years now. I came from London, and the scene is pretty different. It's su- surprising the level of experimentation in this fairly small place when you compare it to somewhere like London. Mm. Bands like yourselves, I know you're not Newcastle based necessarily, but you've sort of come from this hub. And then people like Archipelago, who is sort of a similar shape of band, a bit different, but still a bit kind of 
weird around the edges and then a huge improv scene that I know is somewhat centred around Newcastle Uni. What is it about this place that you think brings this out in the music of that's made here? You were comparing it to London. I think the relative size makes a big difference. I think it's a lot easier to survive as a musician in somewhere like Newcastle and do what you want to do with fewer compromises. So I think that makes a big difference. I think just being a nice kind of close-knit community in Newcastle, everyone knows each other. You can make things happen pretty easily if you want to. There's that. Certainly, I mean, uh, it'd be interesting to hear from Adam, who still lives there. Um, but the size of the place, that yeah, the relatively lower overheads in terms of being able to live as a musician that Mike mentioned, you can spend more time just doing the stuff you like because you have to. Sp- you don't have to spend as much time just keeping a roof over your head. I think that's a huge thing, and I, I think that's why you see, in general, in my opinion, a slightly more left field approach to sort of jazz and improvised music scene in the north of England and into Scotland or certainly in not not in Edinburgh that's expensive but you know like um uh than you do in the south of England I think relating to like specifically the university um it would be remiss not to mention certain figures that I think really do underpin that so you know when I first went to Newcastle I didn't have a lot of experience of like freely improvising music at all it was something that Mike was was more into than I was initially and you go there and there's people like Grilly Edmondes or Will Edmonds, as his muggle name goes, Bennett Hogg, Mariam Rezai now, who's on the staff there. And that it's it's always been ingrained in like the actual teaching staff and the faculty has made sure that there is a space for that sort of thing. And in a lot of the more kind of red brick music degree institutions and even into the into the more like practical uh, institutions like the I went to the RNCM for a master's, for instance, that there isn't the space for that in the way that I think there should be. And and Newcastle, because of those members of staff in the university, have always made space for it. That was key for for me, certainly. It certainly does feel like that, doesn't it? Just by dint of being grassroots by size and perhaps in terms of the economic structure of the whole thing, it ends up being that way. I've I've just had a a new flatmate in this wonderful house of seven, loads of artists and musicians here, actually an ex student of ours, fellow student. And he's just been in London for a number of years and he, he just said the same thing already being up here. just feels so much more different and, and immediately more accessible. These things just start happening. You put out a few feelers to friends. Yeah. Like living here with, with us, we can already just get him immediately into that scene and, you know, within, the limitations at the moment be rehearsing and sharing ideas and it feels so much more accessible well john i know i know you're in heaton as well it's a great place for for music and art and and we can just walk 10 minutes around the corner to have a quick jam which is really something considering that's probably a lot harder at the moment to do in london these things just seem to spawn more spontaneously and, and as jamie mentioned there's less um less need to have it mean something financially perhaps you're less pressured to have it mean something in terms of the industry and yeah for all the diversity down in london my my mate who just arrived here said it's it's amazing how much stuff starts seeming all too similar to one another whereas you get less of it here but each thing is like totally on its own plane i think it would also be a bit amiss to not mention the scene in newcastle outside of the uni as well like the tusk festival the old police house and all those kind of 
real like grassroots institutions that create a massive space for experimental music, left field music, and and bring a lot of people into artists from elsewhere to perform who who are an inspiration, you know. And I think that really helps, like foster the local scene as well. Let's talk about the early days of Taupe. You formed at uni. I know you said you formed after you went for a jam, having seen Soweto Kinch playing. I found that quite interesting, though, because um, it's not necessarily the music I would have expected to come out of a, a jam inspired by Soweto. Let's talk about the first album, Fill Up Your Lungs and Bellow. Is that, my first question is, is that the first album? Because in a review, it says that's your second album. Is there a secret first album? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we did release the first album, which we recorded at university with, with our good pal, Michael Bridgewater. And that's not on the band camp anymore, isn't it? That's why it was lost. Hmm. Yeah, I can't find it. I, I'm curious to yeah. hear it, but... Maybe we should put it back up. I'm not sure. No, it, it's... I, um... I think for our most recent release, we actually ended up reconstituting a lot of the ideas on that first release. I think it went out self-titled in the end, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Self-titled EP sort of thing. Just and taupe. Yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, we, I think a lot of how we've, we've grown to work over the years is not, not necessarily the whole thing of like what we're working with material wise, but how we work with it. And so we having evolved that process over the, you know, a number of years that, you know, we've been together just naturally a lot of those old tunes and gigs were becoming so different anyway we just ended up treating them with this whole new approach that meant we, we actually stuck a few of them on the new release as well because they were so different in nature because i think it just made sense in a way to see that release as what it was it was it was representative of our first year or two it was recorded at uni and yeah maybe we didn't necessarily want it out there in the professional sphere so much anymore not that we're ashamed of it or anything, but it's, you know, it's definitely represented where we were and we're somewhere much different now, so much more different. It's difficult with the recording material now that we've got the internet and everything stays, even if you try and get rid of it, some stuff ends up somehow floating around forever. It's interesting what you say about taking your old material and it, it consistently developing. I assume that's sort of still the modus operandi. One question that came to mind when I was listening to your stuff is it's it, it's quite cerebral in some ways, at least it sounds so from outside, because you can hear that there's a lot of structure, there's a lot of intricate rhythmic play, obviously, and also the form of the music, the form of the songs, there's obviously some overarching structure happening. How difficult is it to, to dip back into it after however long of not playing together? How much do you have to re- you know, actually relearn stuff. How much is it in there, just as a as a group concept? And and how much do you change? How much? How naturally does stuff grow? How much does stuff change from the old to the new? I think the newer pieces, they in general have a smaller amount of core material, and the reason for that was, as long as we're all comfortable with that material, there can be kind of a greater level of pliability but it's still like that piece of music still remain uh, intact in a way. The older stuff, if we haven't been able to meet up for a long time, for instance, this year, if we then get in a room and try and play, 
that does feel like there's a lot of hurdles that we're trying to remember how to jump over much more. It's almost like we're a prog band when you're trying to remember it all, even though that's really not how we kind of, that's not what we listen to. That's not how we see it. When you actually then come to play it for the first time in a year, some of it can feel like that. And the, and the newer stuff doesn't feel like that. It feels like there's some ideas that might be quite intricate or might, might be quite difficult. But once you've kind of got them back into yourself, you can open your ears out and get, and, and however it sounds today is how it sounds today rather than, oh, we got that wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that was one of the real reasons that we really decided with the newer record to, to try and make that shift towards more kind of a tivic, smaller uh, ingredients was because of that. We're not living in the same cities anymore. And when we do get together, it needs to be about realizing something really well rather than realizing this ideal from nine months ago as best as possible. Yeah. And I think it, we find it more exciting and interesting to play. And we think it, it sounds better as well when we're negotiating things in, in the moment and, and there is that space for improvisation with the, how the form plays out as well, rather than kind of a hard grid to follow. Is there flexibility in the form of what you're doing? Is you're not going A B A B A B C D, but you can actually pin that all together as you go. In the newer stuff, more so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and the um, length of things and the and bits that might happen might not that kind of thing. Hmm. Like the overarching form tends to stay the same, but we we want more space within that to really explore whatever it is we're feeling in that particular moment. And I think, as you alluded to, John, that cerebral visceral interaction is really what sort of defined our creative process i think over the years as jamie mentioned it definitely started a bit more cerebral and we we get this quite specific thing down and really try to you know make it pliable and and, and do things with it but it's it's often a bit of a a tough process and and ultimately our head just has to be in it so much and and we don't always want that to be evident and as mike said like does does that result in music that we feel we would want to listen to or best represents us and i think moving a bit more towards shaping stuff that just allows allows the visceral nature to come out a bit more is really what we've we've moved towards so finding a theme that we can all sit on in the rehearsal and then allowing it to become something quite immediately rather than saying okay go away and work on that and come back and we'll have a go in a month you know we just want it to be more accessible and immediate i think fill up your lungs and bellow from 2017 let's let's talk about that as the first album i think this record sounds amazing i mean actually production wise mixing wise the actual sound is is really well done i know chris sharkey was on yeah. the production and mixing for that recorded in newcastle yeah loft, loft studios yeah it sounds brilliant uh, that one's new to me 
Uh, I've only picked that up this week, so that's been really great to uh, get to know. What was the process of putting that together as a as a sort of fledgling record? I suppose let's go back to let's let's touch on how you actually put that those compositions together. What's quite interesting with this band is we all have quite different approaches. I think this one sounds the most like Adam's approach, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. I mean, to put it crudely, we know Mashuga Jazz <laughs> was something that was like pervasive in that material we were writing at the time. And I, not that it's anything to be guilty for, but I definitely hold my hands up as that being part of why the, you know, you know my own creative personality, why it ended up sounding that way. Mashuga um, being the, the, the metal Swedish? Yeah. Yeah, and a very distinct metal band who just, you know, I've heard it said before, we talk about a lot of artists as being ahead of their time, but then the really interesting artists just somehow feeling like to the side of their time. And, and I think Mashoga definitely feel that that role as, as a band you just can't quite pin down and every other band tries to replicate what they do and, and can't quite do it because they've just got this totally unique approach to, to the sound world. And uh, yeah, as a drummer, it's, you know, the, their rhythmic language is really intriguing and, and you can see it really starting to pervade into other musical styles at the moment and, uh, and having a sort of long-term influence. So a lot of the grooves that I ended up writing initially formed the basis for the material that we were working on. So lots of these sorts of heavy, clunky, jagged grooves, that those were really sort of the basis for each piece. Um, and then we try and weave improv in and around that. And maybe that that was sort of symptomatic of our maturity at the time. It was maybe a bit more juxtaposed, like here's a composed section and then we'd snap into something. Yeah, sometimes completely free. So I think the record does sound like that. Very fresh and exciting. I, I definitely wouldn't be critical of ourselves looking back on it. And I think Sharky really helped bring that energy out of as he definitely pushed us in the studio to to be really risky with the material but then yes yeah, slightly more immature perhaps in the way it's things are sort of sandwiched together in some ways so pros and cons to it for for all of us i think i think you've been slightly harsh on it adam i think uh <laughs> maybe I, I am i think some of our my first my first memories of working together as a band were the contrast of adam trying to teach me and Jamie how to do some of these kind of Meshuggah-esque things and freely improvising, uh, which are kind of complete opposites of approach. And I guess our original kind of concept for the band that we wanted it to be was somewhere where we could blend those two things together. And I think, as we're talking about Philip, your lungs and bellow, I think when we got to that, that's, I mean, that came out in 2017, didn't it? That's already, you know, five years after we first started trying to work on that, there was kind of a significant hiatus in the middle when we were all abroad. Yeah, I think what's really nice about that record is how you can you can feel that tension between those two approaches quite, at least I can, maybe it's just because I was in the room, but uh, you, can, you can feel those, those two sides pulling at each other and like we're trying to hold on to certain ideas and but it's fraying a bit at the edges and then it sort of explodes into openness and there's all these kind of acute angles that we go around um and that's kind of like how it felt playing it i think compositionally as well 
it was it was very there was a lot of sharp angles for it kind of written in that we had to be ready for say online that you're trying to blur the, the boundary between what is essentially highly intricate composed material at least rhythmically if not melodically or harmonically and free improvisation and I think you do that very well because even knowing that's kind of the concept behind it uh, there are times when I can't quite decide whether what you're doing is is completely beyond my ears and I just haven't figured it out or whether you have descended into free stuff sprinkled with the flavor of the of the core material can i ask when you say sugar approach to to writing what is it technically that that involves if there is a sort of technical approach to it i guess not not to get too immersed into the jargon of it it's it's essentially thinking of rhythm in terms of vertical relationships because a lot of the time we often conceive of rhythm as moving sort of horizontally along a single line, one note happening after another with various durations in between. But then when we have these two approaches, you know, it's commonly referred to as like polyrhythm, perhaps not the always the best term, but you, you shape two lines that are sort of moving interdependently, like they have common values together, but they definitely move to different, seemingly different lengths of time say one thing based on groupings of four and another juxtaposed thing that might be moving in threes or whatever it might be. And you often get some really interesting effects there where the audience, whether they're musicians or not, can definitely perceive that sort of 3D space opening up. If you've got like a really garish part of the drum kit, like a huge China symbol, pounding out one thing that maybe, you know, Jamie's playing with me on and then Mike's doing this riff in whatever 15 16 or something over the top that the snare and kick might be highlighting i think anyone can perceive those those things happening so it's often a really interesting effect but really really difficult to do and really difficult to improvise over sometimes i think of it like the brian eno music for airports approach to riffing it's the same kind of thing of loops of different lengths phasing over each other kind of yeah
sounds simple when you put it that way, but it translates to really intricate, interesting, easy to hear the sense behind it, but difficult to recognize the system at the core of it. Are there ever times, generally, not just in this album, but when you, you have rhythmical parts that aren't necessarily supposed to overlap? Because like, I notice sometimes Jamie has an alto hook or what sounds like a melody or, or even a rhythm that's not that's sort of phasing across the groove in the drums and, uh, and guitar. I, I don't know whether you, it's just incredibly intricate or whether there are just times when you're doing your own rhythmic thing, but still within a time, within a pulse. There's a bit of both. Sometimes it's composed and it's quite intricate. There are times now where I would hope really as a result of this band, you begin to get comfortable enough with how that kind of rhythmic, I, I like the analogy, the kind of 3D rhythm space. You get comfortable enough with it that if I am improvising and I settle on a motif that I think is quite good, nowadays more than I used to be able to, I can sort of as part of an improvised section, I improvise with this one idea and put it in an interesting space rhythmically. And I, I would never have been able to do that if it wasn't for the, the kind of work we did with this band. And yeah, we, so sometimes it's written, sometimes we'll do a gig and I'll do something and you'll just see Adam's face light up when he figures out that I'm sort of trying to, trying to put this thing in seven over the top of this because I think the texture would sound quite good. I just haven't managed to do it yet. And then he'll just like hit a drum and help me out a bit or something like that. Then that look on my face will turn to despair when I realise we can't. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not good enough. Okay, cool. Make some noise, everyone. Make some noise. That's often our get out card, isn't it? We'll, we'll try and hold on to these things. And and interestingly enough, the, the most fun space for us and, and perhaps also the audience as well is when we don't really even know ourselves if we've got the groove anymore and it's descending into something or, or starting to coagulate into something quite distinct when it wasn't before that there's some sort of magic spot in the middle that's where we've come to now that i think with the fill up thing what was exciting about it was rather than combining these two approaches i think in some ways we accidentally <laughs> highlighted how different they were by like slamming them together next to one another and what's quite nice now and i think it's just because we've been doing it for longer is that we feel a bit more confident that when things start to fray around the edges that's not the same as something being rubbish, something fraying or falling apart or, you know, like a, a city long abandoned by humans with all the trees beginning to grow back through all of the buildings. You know, it, that's, that has a beauty to it. That's just not an old knackered building that needs pulling down. And um, I think we feel more confident in that now. Like, whoa, we've fallen off the horse, but I quite like the animal we've ended up with. So let's just stay here for a bit, you know. Um, Those are great analogies. Thank you. Fantastic. I asked Alexander Hawkins, the, the pianist, improvise using some of the same kind of ideas, I suppose, what he was doing when I heard him play last year at, at a festival here in Newcastle. And he said he's adding a level of taking something and doing it over and over again and then saying to himself, I'm going to try and do this at the same time until eventually he hasn't got enough brain space. And, and it, fray, it frays at the edges, like you say, about sometimes what's happening when you're trying to put these parts together, maybe spontaneously. And it's okay. That's part of... That's part of the sound. And actually what you're doing is, is already so far beyond the momentary ear that we can't tell that it's happening anyway necessarily. We don't know when that point has arrived at as a listener. So you could go with it and just convince us that that's supposed to be like it anyway. So. 
long as we look like we know what we're doing. Uh, I think I think you're touching on a really important thing there, John, because I think for us, all this the technical side of things, at least for me, it's never been about making a challenge for yourself or, or doing something from a theoretical point of view that's complex for the sake of it. It's with these polyrhythms, we can kind of get this out of body feeling when we when we listen to the music. It's like into a load of minimal techno stuff where there's like just these little polyrhythms going on, but it's not about the technical polyrhythm. It's about having these different speeds going on at the same time and how it just Effects. how it makes you feel the effect of that. I think yeah. that's key, so it's, isn't it? It's the, it's the pro it's the approach in the technical side put towards the end of how that makes you feel rather than exploring technical concepts for their own sake i would say that is always the key isn't it we might come up with something and go, oh what what if we did this and oh that might work if we kind of did that 11 idea that you had over the top of it let's see if that works and then it kind of almost works and it's like okay well it doesn't really matter if it's 11 and 4 or whatever let's just change it to it has the sound that you want so it might initially start as a thesis that was quite technical but ultimately if something makes it into a set it's always based on the kind of sonic and emotive virtue rather than the theory that underpins it. And I think when we stop making decisions in that way is when it will become a bit of a, to be honest, a bit of a, like a big cock fest. And it's just trying to, um, there's a lot of bands that it just feels sometimes like you're watching people do sports <laughs> rather than watching people make art, you know? I know exactly what a... you mean. <laughs> but you've Anti-sports. arrived at this You've arrived at this place after seven or eight years of working these things out together and you've obviously yeah. changed as you've gone and it sounds really phony, but uh, grown as a group of people and also as people, like you say, playing from playing for the feel rather than for the cockfest, to, to borrow your lovely <laughs> term. I think it's important to add about this first album and about everything else you do as well. It's, it's easy to talk about all this intricate compositional and improvisatory concepts and lose lose sight of the fact that you do get a big variety of textural and dynamic contrast in your playing both recorded and live again with this kind of music there's often the danger that everything is monotone both in sound and in character but actually you you do move through different places on the first album there, there are lots of places where the textures are really interesting and really different and there's a huge amount of space um, and a lot of that apart from your attitude and playing is, is coming from the electronics the way you're using electronics and 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 the sound of the drums as well uh, together maybe someone would like to add to that in brief certainly for me i always try the way i play sax in a band versus the way i play sax and the effects pedal thing in taupe is very different and it'd be very easy just to play sax with a pitch shifter on and everyone thinks it sounds a bit cool but you're not interacting with that as a set of options and textures. So I I kind of see the two disciplines quite separately. And if I'm playing something without effects on in Tobe, it's probably more idiosyncratically like saxophony than if I've got some buttons pressed. And then at that point, it's about creating a texture or a sound that I couldn't make myself otherwise, rather than augmenting the sound of a saxophone with whatever button you've pressed. The most recent stuff, I feel that that when we were writing the ideas, being a little simpler with the ideas we were writing enabled us to consider the orchestration of that a bit more. And I think within a trio, 
really you have two choices you either don't really consider orchestration that much and you all know exactly what your role is and you try and do it as best as possible or you really go there's only three of us but how far can we stretch this when i was studying in manchester there's a, a composer and, and teacher and performer and all-round good egg called Maurizio Pauli and he was talking about compound sounds the idea that you have a gesture a musical gesture that is formed from an array of different sounds but it's perceived as this like one sonic thing and we've got a tune called get the keys the very start of that there's a hi-hat very dry and Mike's in a really clicky high guitar harmonic the idea isn't that you go, oh, the guitar player's har playing harmonics. The idea is that there is this one high-pitched, really clicky, dry sound playing that rhythm that's perceived as a singular entity. It just happens that it might need two of us to generate that at that given point in time. The electronics really enable us just to to fill a space if 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 this piece of music wants to go in a certain direction then chances are mike and i can try and make that happen occasionally less often but occasionally we'll have a jam or something and we'll happen upon a sound that then leads the compositions that happens more often with the free stuff is that one of us all happen upon a sound and then we all interact with it but more often than not it's knowing or what we want to hear and trying to find how to do that i think anyway mike doesn't look like he agrees with me no no i do i do agree i'm just uh trying to think something that came into my head while you were talking about that jamie is a conversation i was having i can't even remember who i was talking to but a couple of years ago but it was about using effects as a guitarist and we kind of came to the realization that a lot of people think of effects as things you add on to your instrument like extra additional things on top of your instrument but really you're expanding your instrument and you're you're creating more affordances for you for what your instrument actually is so as when you know if you're using a delay you're playing a delay you're not adding a delay onto what you're playing there's certainly times where you'd you'd think of a tune or a melody, go, oh, that would sound quite cool if I put a delay on it. You put a delay on it, and then actually you end up taking bits out of the tune yeah. to make space, because actually what that gesture is has now changed to be this sort of delayed melodic line that would be musically too busy, too muddy, too much. If you played the original line you'd con conceived of True. and then just shoved a delay on it, you have... They all interact with one another and I, I find not to be too self-aggrandizing because we've all got a lot to learn at all times. It's what's so exciting and so depressing about music. But yeah, I do see a lot of people now, and saxophone now, so many people use effects with saxophone. But yeah, you kind of just see that they're, they're doing what they do and then they hit a button and don't change what they're doing. They just sort of let the button do the work. 
from that point. And I do that sometimes, must, must be said, often when I don't feel confident about the monitor mixes and stuff and I don't really know how the sound's coming out to the audience. That's a challenge. But I loved hearing you talk about electronics as orchestration. I think that's the first time I've heard the two concepts put together, but it's essentially what it is. You're absolutely right. Um, and it makes total sense to consider it in that way. It's, it's kind of that Ravel thing. I mean, the, the most cliched example is Bolero, right? The same tune over and over again, but it's the combination of different instruments that create this, this kind of evolving interest. And you're not supposed to hear the tune as bassoon and flute. You're supposed to hear it as this sound that's playing the tune. And it, I try and think of it as the same thing. I don't want you to hear it as saxophone with bit crusher and octava. I want you to hear it as that sound is playing that thing. One last thing on that that I wondered was the lack of bass in the trio, because a lot of bands build around a bass. And I suppose yeah. it sounds to me like you fill that gap either by using that as a thing, like just this, this isn't bass-built music, or leaving the bass free for the rhythmic aspect of the kick and the, and the guitar. Well, sometimes you fill it with the electronics as well. The, the guitar's quite often doubled or shifted down into the kind of the bass frequencies and sometimes the saxophone. Yeah. Have those been active decisions or have they just unrolled? Yeah, so when we started, the, I've, from the very beginning, I wanted to try playing the bass as a guitarist, if you know what I mean. Um, and so from the start, I've, I've been using kind of a, a rig with a bass amp and a guitar amp and an octava on everything I, I play in Taupe. So the whole time, everything you hear, there's always an octave doubled down going through a bass amp and it's, it's shaped a bit so it's not as well it is kind of obtuse isn't it but it's not quite as obtuse as that could sound uh it's yeah i guess to answer the question we i've always thought of it like i am the bass rather than it being a bass free so that the guitar part is playing the bass kind of so that was a very active decision uh, active process yeah i guess a lot of it came out of not having any friends having any friends who played the bass at that time or uh, you know, that week there was no one free to play bass so we yeah <laughs> i think it ties in again sort of to what we were saying about the effects though is that the way that mike plays the guitar in this band is informed by the that's what he, he, it's it's not i play the guitar and then i've done this afterwards like his instrument is playing this plank of wood with the six strings through these electronics into these two amplifiers. And that, that is the understanding of what his instrument is. And it's a similar thing. I've actually seen a band that was drums, guitar and saxophone, and he had his guitar amp and his bass amp and a pedal octave shifter in the middle. And basically they were kind of shredding some sort of riffy Queens of the Stone Age type stuff. And it was all quite good fun for 15 minutes, but he wasn't changing the way that he was playing his instrument at all. So at that point, they should have just had a bass player because his instrument was the guitar. He's just bought another amp in. Whereas when I play with Mike, I don't really feel that I'm playing with a guitarist. I'm playing with like Mike as he approaches his instrument and his setup. And, and they are different things. It's hard to explain. But I think the point at which you were just playing guitar really normally and you happen to have a bass amp with you, I don't think it would work. No, I think it comes... What I'm thinking of, what that you saying that made me think of is... Um how Motown records used to operate. And when they got en new engineers in, they would always, the first thing they taught an engineer to do was how to master a record. And then once they knew how to master really well, 
then they would learn how to do the final mix down and then they would learn how to EQ each instrument and you went through backwards through the whole stage of record of making an album until the last thing they learned was how to plug a mic in and, and position it in front of a player and I think it's just that thing of your starting point is what you end up with is the final sound you build ev- you build everything before that and how you how you want to get to that place let's wind forward a bit to your more recent offerings so within two years get the keys in 2019 as you've mentioned jamie already one of those tracks and then this year earlier this year interrupted by the pandemic the ever-present pandemic (laughs) not blue light in 2020 (laughs) i do have one question about not blue light mike you're credited as playing objects yeah what does that involve as a guitarist i'm i i just use a lot of i guess what some people might think of as non-conventional things to play the guitar in a way that's not really, I can't pretend it's like very novel from a, the wider world of guitarists improvising. But uh, yeah, I just use various objects to play the guitar. So some of the objects on the album are like barbecue skewers and hinges and a vibrator and lights, bike lights. Could you explain how the bike lights affect the sound because i knew it was happening because i was seeing loads of random flashing coming from the other room and i liked how it sounded but i never really pieced it together there's two ways in which the bike lights make sound deep dive into my rig here (laughs) Uh, one way is that if most uh, electronic items produce some kind of electromagnetic radiation so that's like the same kind of thing as a radio wave or, or light guitar pickups pick that up as well that's the same way that if you're in like a a club with some dodgy lighting you might get a buzz coming through your guitar amp it's the same kind of thing but you can i use flashing bike lights sometimes because you get that you get that rhythmic kind of interference noise through the pickups and the other thing is i've on my pedal board i've built some pedals that have light sensors on them and, and use that to f- change various parameters and in the, in the effects so you're actually using <laughs> light itself to to change parameters yeah, yeah, sometimes. For example, I've got like a a modified fuzz that'll use the light to change the mix between various parts of the circuit. And I've got, yeah, I've also got a delay. I, that's not actually on this album, is it? But I've got a delay with a light sensor that, that will change the delay speed with light. So you get all these weird pitch shifting, watery effects based on like what the lighting engineer decides to do. And Sometimes they realise that they're they're having an effect and sometimes they don't, it's quite nice, yeah. I know we've already talked about some of the changes in your playing. What what can people expect going from fill up your lungs and bellow through to not blue light in terms of what feels different in the music on that on that on those second and third records? That's one thing that comes to mind for me straight away is again the sort of proggy thing we alluded to earlier on, 
it's often just quite exhausting to hear music that's constantly shifting and changing theme and material and texture and sometimes that is what you want i think maybe we were a bit too guilty of doing that indulging in that a little bit too much and and we'd had a few experiences with bands over the years we'd seen and, and really admired who would quite happily just stick on material and sort of reverse engineer themes perhaps in the same way as as, as mike was talking about taking textures from their endpoint and then reverse engineering them to try and work out then how to do that i think we've we do take themes a lot more nowadays jamie mentioned get the keys that was perhaps the first tune we really did that with and instead of doing an additive thing from there oh, okay we've got this idea how do we then develop it and shape it into something more we decided to shape it into something less we're like okay we've got the final product already in many ways let's take stuff out and then see how that shapes the compositional process and i think we really like the effects we'd be in essence to simplify we would just stick on things for longer and build up on themes and shape themes over a couple of minutes as opposed to just here's theme number one in its entirety progressing to theme number two in its entirety so i think we we really enjoyed that process and have done for the last couple of years so i think we'll probably be employing it more as we go forward as well which leads me to ask what the impact of this year has really has been for you as a group and individually maybe if you want to talk about that and what what you see for taupe what what are you planning on doing next uh, are you working on new stuff have you been able to work on new stuff do you have a plan do you have an idea for for where you want to go what you want to happen yes the immediate impact was this new album not blue light was due to come out in april so we there's you know like everyone uh had to cancel a big album launch tour it was going to be the first time we we toured did a proper tour abroad we had a bunch of gigs lined up in the netherlands uh when the whole pandemic happened we just we brought forward the release actually because we were like it was going to be all around this tour but no let's we just put it out but then to move on to the to the rest of your question i think one of the things that makes this band really like interesting to us and that shape and that really forms the identity is that we we don't really have a band leader and we're, we're very kind of collaborative and we bring together three quite different approaches and it's always been about us working in the same room composing together playing together and and using improvisation to to shape that so it's really difficult to do stuff in lockdown especially as we're in three different cities we kind of it's really it's really disruptive i guess it's disruptive for a lot of things but it's disruptive to how we work in quite a big way um and a lot of what we've been trying to figure out over the summer is how we can how we can make things happen but not lose that collaboration from from an equal place rather than a kind of a band leader sort of situation have you figured out a way of using the current situation in a novel way or is it is it a case of just waiting it out at the moment we haven't figured out a way of making things work remotely because we've lived in different cities for quite a while now we've lived since for six years wasn't it 2014 um for a while when that first happened we were trying to work collaboratively at a distance as well as meeting up and, and what we found was that when we're at least for how we work as a band we might plant some seeds we might come up with a few little ideas when we're apart and share them with each other but 
all the real creative work, creative fruits came when we were together in the same room. And yeah, it's just a, one of the many tricky things about the pandemic that we can't really, we can't specifically do that. And I guess with, with this whole pandemic thing as well, especially as musicians, it kind of knocks the wind out of your sails a lot. And it's, there was definitely a few months, I don't know how it was for you guys, but had to take a bit of time out and figure out how how to deal with it mentally. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite refreshing in a way to, to hold your hands up and say, and not pretend too much. Like, you know, we're immediately just getting back to the drawing board and thinking of creative, innovative approaches to keep things going. And, you know, sometimes it just needs to be done, doesn't it? To say, yeah, it's, it definitely knocked us all back individually a bit and you have many different life crises. It goes up and down throughout this time. Yeah, I think obviously more than ever we would want to be doing this, but it's like Mike said, it's so much about doing this together in the same room. That's how this music comes alive. Yeah, so it's difficult to dress up in any other way in many ways. And we're just very much all looking forward to that time again when we can get in the same room i imagine that when you finally do get back together there'll be something to be said for that spur and the time you've spent apart and the time you've spent the time we all spent inside doing our own thing and trying to keep motivated or pursuing something new i imagine that i can see it being positive ultimately for bands such as yourself such as yourselves i think i, ho- I hope so <laughs> to try and put things in a in a more positive light like you say mm-hmm. where can people find your various bits and pieces com. yeah if you go there it'll link you to everything you could possibly dream of there's one t-shirt left that's the black t-shirt with the cool faces if you go on the website and you go oh that's a cool t-shirt there's only one of them left <laughs> we're gonna charge double so, i don't want to ruin the uh the magic of that but i think there might be two there's only two of them left <laughs> <laughs> you can um it's, it's good good loungewear you know during lockdown times can i ask one final question which is where do all the names come from you've got some great names fill up your lungs with bellow um i know where the average co- color of a french mole comes from but maybe listeners don't a clown drools uh all sorts of things where who, who's the are these just random snippets or is there some logic to any of it there are names with logic to them and they are the most recent batch of things were named after uh, an incident where we were packing down after a gig and two men tried to steal our car and all the equipment and we were in the car at the same time as well wow uh, <laughs> I got a hella black eye so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was it was violent they wanted that car that was get the keys because they they shouted the words "get the keys" as they were trying to pull Adam out of the driver's seat. It was serious. And then the tune "Cosmonaut" with a K that's named after the bar that they came out of. Al Meritino is the model of Adam's car. So there's a, there's a little kind of suite of works that are inspired by by that incident. Not blue light. Because while while all this was happening, Jamie was on the phone to the police. He was sort of in the one side of the car where they couldn't get to. I was trying to get the gear off this guy who'd opened our boot and put it back in the boot. And Adam was trying to like defend and keep hold of keep his hold own of car keys. keys. <laughs> uh, and the police <laughs> said they couldn't send 
a car immediately. They said it was a not not a blue light situation. So yeah, like just hold tight. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's urgent. It's just not blue light. So sit tight if you can. It's like we're tra- we've been Try trying to, to sit someone. tight the whole time. I'm the only one that's managed it. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Sounds horrible. That's where they're from. A- average color of a French mole. You did say to explain it. So um, if you go on. The- uh, Wikipedia, there's a version of Wikipedia called Simple English Wikipedia. And if you search taupe into Simple English Wikipedia, taupe is the French word for mole. It's also that kind of colour, this sort of vague, beigey sort of colour. But you go to taupe on Simple English Wikipedia and it gives you a list of definitions of taupe, one of which is that it's the average colour of a French mole. And um, just the notion that someone has commissioned that research was quite remarkable to us. And, and often you finish writing a piece of music and then you decide what to call it afterwards. So that's roughly tied in with the mythology surrounding the group. As for many musicians, track titles and album titles come at great hardship. Lots <laughs> yeah. of, you know, you've got six hours to kill driving from like Glasgow to Derby for a gig. And Long time to discuss. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the album title for Fill Up Your Lungs and Bellow took a very long time. So I, I it, in the end, yeah, we have six hours to kill driving from Glasgow to Derby and Mike and Adam took about 10 hours of that six hour journey deciding on what they were going to call the album. And I pretended <laughs> to be end, asleep. <laughs> but you complimented it on, on, on so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it was well worth it in the end. I'm really glad that we captured on tape Jamie's admission that that was not real sleep there. No, I, I, I <laughs> after yeah, after the uh, after Gretna Green services, I just was like, sub this, <laughs> I'm going to sleep. I'm a big fan of uh, obscure and uh, strange names from strange places. I do have one name to propose to you in tribute to uh, to prog music, and yes, after Tales of Topographic Oceans, uh, topography. Topography. topography yeah we'll nice. do a yes cover yeah <laughs> do what yes sound yes would sound like if played by Derek Bailey <laughs> Ham Benning and uh, <laughs> Evan Parker there was a, there was a while and obviously you spend a lot of time in cars and, and you have to be a bit just sort of silly to pass the time and to and we've run out of things to say to one another quite a long time ago now and um you play because taupe is a color you can have quite a lot of fun just arbitrarily fitting the word taupe into pre-existing album titles. So like kind of taupe and <laughs> uh, all that kind of thing. I mean, there's so many of them. We're going to do, yeah, we're going to do a free band camp release of 50 improvised miniatures called 50 Shades of Taupe. Um, <laughs> and that never happened. Although maybe that could be our December project, actually, would, would be to do 50 Shades of Taupe. That's one. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Things like that could be could be uh, feasible, actually, as sort of improvised miniatures and and, and having a, a phase of being sort of less precious about the finality of what it is and just releasing something that is really transparent about what the process was. And I think people would probably find that interesting anyway, hopefully. Like, oh, that band mm. found a way of making something during this period of time. Let's check it out. People are, people are hungry for stuff like that, for... Uh ideas and insights and something to get their teeth into when they can't get out and and see it in person. It's been really, really interesting and entertaining talking to you. I really appreciate you giving the time. Go out, uh, go out, don't go out, stay at home and uh, go on Bandcamp uh, or topetopetope.com and pick up one of these three lovely 
records. There's even one on cassette, which is brilliant. I was very excited about that. Fingers crossed that things things look more positive for us all soon. I hope and, so. Uh, Fingers crossed. See you on stage. Yeah. See you on stage. Nice one. Optimism. Turquoise Coconut is a UK-based independent record label. For information about releases, videos, collaborations and more, head to turquoisecoconut.com or find us on Facebook. Turquoise Coconut. New music for curious ears.